This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Yeah, so, so who knew there were so many people here interested in Colorado politics? Huh? Good evening, I'm Bradley Graham, the co-owner of Politics and Prose, uh, along with my wife, Lisa Muscatine. And on behalf of uh, everybody in PNP, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. It really is a thrill to be hosting uh, Michael Bennett, who's represented Colorado in the U.S. Senate now f- uh, for a decade. Although something tells me that's not the, uh, the only reason so many of you have come to hear him this evening. He's also, of course, running for president. Uh, he's... Uh, he's, he's, he's running it in what's still a rather uh, crowded field of two, two dozen Democrats, but Senator Bennett uh, comes to the race with a reputation as an independent thinker and pragmatic centrist. Uh, he also comes from a family with a, a long history of public service. Born in New Delhi, where his father was an aide to the U ambassador to India, uh, Senator Bennett spent much of his youth here in, in D.C. as his dad worked as, a, as an aide to Vice President uh, Hubert Humphrey, ran USAID and the Carter administration, and served as president of National Public Radio. Uh, educated as a lawyer, Senator uh, Bennett clerked uh, for the U.S. Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals and later served as counsel to the Deputy Attorney General in the Clinton administration. Uh, he then spent seven years in the private sector, working for an investment company where he helped, uh, among other things, reorganize some distressed companies and manage the consolidation of of some others. Uh, He went back into public service in 2003, first as as chief of staff to then-Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper, and later oversaw Denver's public schools as superintendent before joining the U.S. Senate in 2009. Uh, Now he's he's written a book, uh, The Land of Flickering Lights, uh, but this, this isn't your typical campaign autobiography. In fact, it doesn't offer all that much about the senator's personal history. Instead, it's more of a, of a closely observed critical analysis of today's uh, dysfunctional political landscape. Senator Bennett laments the destruction of bipartisanship, the corrupt influence of wealthy donors and lobbyists on politicians, uh, and the rise of what he calls an insurgent faction of Republicans. He explores these themes by focusing on five case studies, the fight over seats on the U.S. Supreme Court, the recent Trump tax cuts, the demise of the Iran nuclear agreement, the role of big money in stymieing action on climate change and and other issues, and the sabotaging of a potential bipartisan deal to reform the nation's immigration policies. While recounting how much has been lost as a result of uh, of hyperpartisan politics, Senator Bennett also proposes a way forward, outlining a, a framework of values, what he calls the four freedoms, that could serve to reestablish a more collaborative approach to governing. Uh, he's definitely a voice worth listening to, ladies and gentlemen. Please join me in welcoming Senator Michael Bennett. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you all for being here tonight. I hope not only will you buy my book tonight, but that you'll use this as an opportunity to buy another book and a book after that for politics and prose because it's such an incredible national asset that we're all sitting in tonight. And so thank you. Um, the Sure. How's that? Better? Um, and I thought um, that was actually a pretty good description of the book. Uh, maybe I don't have to go into it in detail, but I think what I'll do is try to go for about 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so and then treat the rest of it as if we were having a town hall of some kind or a book party, if that's what you want it to be. Um, 
I, I very much uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you for going over my bio. One of the things I say at the beginning of this book in the introduction is that it's not a memoir. And I, and I, and I write that I couldn't possibly uh, ask you to read one of those, and I couldn't bear to write one myself. It is about our democracy and the state of our democracy. That, that, that small biographical section in the book, uh, which... Um, my publisher, George, at Grove Atlantic made me put in the book, uh, 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 is entitled The Accidental Senator, uh, because when I first came to the Senate, I was appointed. I had been in business in Colorado. I'd been the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools most recently. I'd been a lawyer before that here in Washington. And uh, when I was appointed by then Governor Bill Ritter, and I explained sort of why he appointed me. I, actually, the other day I was asked by a Colorado public radio reporter why Ritter had appointed me, and I said I really never understood it. Politically, it didn't help him at all. I had 3% name ID, and nobody in the state thought I should be in the Senate, including my daughters, who had gotten, had gotten used to running the Denver Public Schools, which is how they thought about my job. They were the ones that decided when we closed for snow and what would be for lunch that day. Um, but. But I gave my explanation for why I thought Ritter appointed me, and, it, and it's in the book. And then, and then the reporter for Colorado Public Radio said, well, let me tell you what he said to me. And he pushed a button, and out came Bill Ritter's disembodied voice saying, well, for one thing, he's the first guy that I know that I've ever met who graduated from Yale Law School and didn't tell me that in the first 20 minutes of the conversation. So... Lesson for all of you that may want to be a senator someday, don't talk about that. The one, I guess I will mention the one thing in the bio that in the accidental senator part of it, because th this is what the Republican chairman of the, uh, the, the Colorado Republican Party called me, and it was, um, you know, it hurt my feelings, but it happened to be true. Uh, and the one thing in the bio that is that I think is sort of interesting to people is that when I was in the second grade, which I was at a school not far from here, um, we were asked to line up in our class by the people that had been in the country, whose parents had been in the country the longest, whose families had been in the country the longest, and the people whose families had been in the country the shortest period of time. And I was the answer to both those questions because my dad's family had, a guy named Edward Fuller, had, or Edmund Fuller, had come over on the Mayflower, and my mom and her parents were, is my mother here by any chance? My mother, who's here tonight. We're, we're, we're Polish Jews who had survived the Holocaust, so in many ways, uh, you know, it was an, it's an American story, I think. It's sort of a, a, a really um, an American biography that captures a lot of people's experiences. Um, uh, the, what, I, what I tried to do was sit down to figure out what I had lived through the last 10 years as a senator. I've now been there for 10 years, and I've been here during a particularly dysfunctional time in American politics. And so I tell five stories about that. The first one is about what we have done to the Senate's constitutional responsibility to advise and consent on judicial nominations. This is, a, this in the period of time that I've gone there, we have taken a process that historically was treated seriously and in a bipartisan way and with the dignity the Constitution would, would require, and we have turned it into a wholly partisan exercise, just like the other stuff that we're dealing with. And the danger that I see here is that we, we are going to degrade the judiciary um, uh, and infect it with what should be our temporary partisan insanity in the, in the, um, in the, in the, in the Senate and in the, and in the House. Um, the story that you'll read if you read the book is a story of Mitch McConnell being the most strategic figure in the Senate, never losing sight of his objectives, doing very dishonorable things, including blocking Merrick Garland from ever coming up for a vote. By the way, yeah, we should applaud for not doing that. Um, and, and, and I believe, and I write this in the book, that not that uh, McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat only, which he did, but that he stole the presidency for Donald Trump. I believe he elected Donald Trump on the basis of that vacancy. Now, there's some people that look at all this and say, 
because he galvanized the Republican base around that, and they were able to overlook Trump's abject failings as a Republican nominee for president. Um, and Trump says over and over again, and it's in the book, that um, – that I know you don't like me, I know you got problems with me, but you got to vote for me because it's the judges, the judges, the judges. And meanwhile, Democrats, and I was running for office in 2016 for re-election, the debate we were having was, should Hillary reappoint Merrick when she is elected president, or should she put somebody else on the bench? That's the conversation we were having while they were relentlessly pushing themselves uh, over the line in terms of the victory. There's a temptation on our side of, for people that are on my side to want to uh, fight fire with fire and and continue to degrade the institutions in Washington. Uh, I, I argue strongly in the book, and it is especially evident to me in terms of the judges, that accepting McConnell's dystopian view of um, our, our, our exercise in self-government or the Freedom Caucuses is uh, by accepting their one-way ratchet down is in effect giving up on our, um, our responsibility to govern ourselves in this country and we can't afford to do it. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, the, the second one is about climate. I'll be brief about this, but it tells the story of a relatively honorable tradition that the Republican Party had on climate change Richard, or, and on the environment. Richard Nixon uh, signing into law the, the statute that created the EPA, signing into law the Clean Air Act, signing into law the Clean Water Act. Ronald Reagan, uh, a skin cancer survivor, closing the hole in the ozone layer using a cap-and-trade system basically to do that. Two Bushes who said climate change was real and that humans were contributing to it and who went to the UN and said we need to do something about this. And John McCain who ran for president on climate change because it had been his bill. And now what has happened is we've got a national party, un very unusual in the world, that says climate change is fake. What happened in that 10 years? The Supreme Court decided Citizens United in 2010, and the cases that followed Citizens United have created a terrible corruption of inaction uh, that I can talk more about. Um, I, I think I write in the book that I used to describe the uh, majority opinion in Citizens United as uh, that it reminded me of reading a seventh grader's American government paper for the naivete and ignorance that it reflected. Um, I stopped saying that because I decided it was insulting to Colorado's seventh graders, so I don't say it anymore. <laughs> the next story is the story about 10 years of fiscal fights and the fiscal hypocrisy of the Republicans. I've been in the Senate for 10 years, as I mentioned earlier. 40% of the time, and some of you are here who have worked in the Senate, and I, I know, 40, I know, know, know how crazy this is, 40% of the time that I've been here, we have been on a continuing resolution, which is just a temporary budget to bridge one gap of time to another gap of time. There are no priorities reflected in our budget as a result of that. The American people's priorities are not reflected. The dead hand of somebody who made a deal long time ago uh, is reflected, but not the priorities today. And, 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 um, and you may have seen on the debate stage, Joe Biden and I had a disagreement the other night about um, a deal that he cut with Mitch McConnell, which I, I go on in the book at great length about it. It was a classic Washington deal, two o'clock in the morning, no one had read it. It was the fiscal cliff, you may remember, when the Bush tax cuts were expiring and when the across the board cuts of the sequester was going into effect. And we agreed to a deal that, that basically um, made permanent all, almost all of the Bush tax cuts, which Democrats had run against for a decade and stripped us of an economic argument going into the 2016 election against Trump. At the same time, we accepted the Tea Party sequester as the price of doing business. And today, we're still having a fight right now about how to lift those caps five years later. And, um, and then at the end of it is obviously the description of what it means after you have 10 years of people calling Barack Obama a Bolshevik and a socialist, unwilling to help him 
during the depths of the worst recession since the Great Depression, when we were saving the auto industry in Detroit, when we were doing the stimulus package, and then they get a guy who runs for president saying, I'm going to give you the biggest tax cut that you've ever seen. I'm going to give you the biggest increase in defense spending that you've ever seen. I'm going to pay off our bonds in seven years. I'm not going to touch Medicare. I'm not going to touch Social Security. And that guy wins the Republican nomination. He goes on to win the presidency of the United States. And there's a chart in the book that shows for the first time since Vietnam, we're basically in a situation this is the audiovisual portion of tonight's the presentation. <laughs> Historically, your your the unemployment rate and the and the, our deficit go up and down together. And if you think about it for one second, it's not surprising. When we're in a in a period of economic recession, the unemployment rate's going up. We're we're collecting f less taxes, and therefore the deficit is going up as well. This is one of the only times in American history where the deficit's going like this as the unemployment rate is going like this. And the next time we have an economic downturn or the next time we're engaged in um, a foreign adventure or a misadventure of some kind, we're going to be very sorry that we spent this time spending the money that we spent this way. And just on that point, um, since 2001, we have spent $5 trillion on tax cuts almost all of which have gone to the wealthiest people in America, exacerbating the income inequality we have. We've spent $5.6 trillion on uh, wars in the Middle East. So that's 11 or 12 or $13 trillion. Trump says it's $7 trillion in the Middle East, $13 trillion that we might as well have lit on fire from the vantage point of the American people who are struggling with an economy of 40 years of no economic mobility for the bottom 90% of Americans. And for people in my state, if I had to sum it up, one decade of town halls who come and say, Michael, I can't, I'm working as hard as I can, and I cannot afford some combination of housing, healthcare, higher education, or early childhood education, which means you can't afford a middle-class life. And for the families that I that are not coming to my town halls because they're working two or three jobs, but are the moms and dads of the kids that I used to work for when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools before I was in this job, who are working relentlessly but see no escape from poverty, uh, the idea that we burned 12 or 13 trillion dollars doing that, I have a long list in here of what you could have spent 12 or 13 trillion dollars, and it includes fixing every single bridge in America, fixing every single uh, airport in America, making Social Security solvent for our children's generation, paying every teacher in America 50% more, giving preschool to everybody in America who needs it. So it gives you a sense. Those are not either or propositions. That I didn't even complete the list of what you could have spent. And, um, and there's a lot in there about the, the, the ways in which this has not been a fair fight because the fight has been waged by people, the Freedom Caucus in particular, who think they've been sent here to dismantle the federal government. So, you know, I used to, when I went home to Denver over these years, there were many times I got off the airplane in, in, in at DIA, it's called Denver International Airport, the newest airport built in America, which is we're proud of, a quarter of a century ago, while the Chinese are building, you know, an airport a minute, basically. Uh, the Chinese, this is in the book too, the Chinese in three years in this decade poured more concrete than we did in the 20th century in America. Um, by the way, just now we've spent seven months fighting over $6 billion for Donald Trump's ineffective wall while the Chinese are building 3,500 miles of fiber optic cable to connect um, uh, Latin America, Africa, and the surveillance state of China. The opportunity cost of this presidency um, is, is unbelievable. I got distracted, <laughs> not surprisingly. Uh, let me be quicker on this. The Iran deal, it gets a chapter in this book, a deal that I voted for in 2016 when I was up for election. It describes the process I went through to try to figure out whether to support the deal or not. It was the only vote that I took from which the, the pollsters told me I could not recover. That is that if, if I took the vote and they were able to spend a bunch of money attacking me for having made that vote. There was no way that I could make it through. I did make it through, um, fortunately, uh, partly because of my opponent, but I think also because, <laughs> but I think also because 
Colorado concluded that it was actually a good deal. And on the front end, it was very hard to, to know whether the Iranians would comply or not with the deal. And certainly there wasn't any evidence. And my, the vote for me would have been a great vote to separate myself from President Obama in a swing state of Colorado. And if, if the Iranians didn't comply with the deal, I couldn't be held responsible for it. But I came to the conclusion that while it wasn't a perfect deal, it was better than no deal by far. I tell the story, the painful story in there of what the Republicans in the Senate did with this um, deal, which was to entertain a letter. We, we have these caucus meetings twice a week, and sometimes people pass along letters for commemorative coins for somebody in their state who's done something or a commemorative stamp. Or, and I just say this was kind of a different letter that Tom Cotton passed around, who had been in the Senate for 90 days when he passed it around, because it was a letter addressed to the mullahs in Iran. Telling, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it, it literally happened that he sent off a letter saying, you can't trust this president and we will not stand behind him in this arms control negotiation. Almost 50 members of the United States Senate signed that letter. That's a, that story goes detail after detail. I, I write about Benjamin Netanyahu accepting an invitation from Speaker Boehner to come speak to a joint session of Congress uh, to talk about how terrible the Iran deal was. And I, and I, I, I write about sitting there on the floor uh, thinking to myself how Benjamin Netanyahu, what a, what a burden he has to carry as prime minister of Israel, but also wondering how he would have felt if Barack Obama accepted an invitation from the minority party in the Knesset to come address the Knesset about something Netanyahu was trying to do without telling Netanyahu that he was doing it. And it's just a sense of the politicization now, even of our foreign policy. And finally, by the time Trump shows up in this book, coming into office. Now it's known what the Iranians are doing. Now it's known that Iran is a year from breaking out to a nuclear weapon, not two or three months, which is where they were when we voted on this deal to begin with. And still he tears it up to satisfy a billionaire in Las Vegas whose wife's, I'm not making this up, it's in the book, whose wife's Hermes purse falls out of the uh, balcony in the in the during the president's State of the Union address and lands on a Republican congressman. Um, the uh, uh, the last story is the story about the immigration bill in 2013. I was part of the gang of eight that wrote that bill. Uh, we spent about seven or eight months together uh, in in um, and and I got to know these guys very well. I was one of the four Democrats. It was Durbin, me, Schumer, and Menendez, and the Republicans were um, uh, Lindsey Graham and John McCain and Marco Rubio and Jeff Flake. And uh, if the American people could have seen what that work looked like, we'd have a 75% approval rating instead of an 80% approval rating. That's where I lost my train of thought. I used to walk through the Denver International Airport that beautiful airport, 25 years old, and I'd want to have a paper bag over my head because I was so embarrassed about what we, the hijinks that were going on here during the week and think about how am I going to explain this to people? And I would wonder, why would anybody want to work in a place that has a 9% approval rating, which is what the Congress has? In fact, I went down to the floor once with two charts. One was a chart that showed the senators that we didn't always have a 9% approval rating. Just to remind them, it was once actually closer to 50%. And, and, and the other was to pose the question, well, what, who else has a 9% approval rating? And the answer is virtually no one. The, 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 at that time, the IRS had a 40% approval rating. And Paris Hilton had a 15% approval rating, and more people wanted the country to be communist at 11% than our approval rating, and poor Fidel Castro had a 5% approval rating. But there's an answer to it, and the answer is that if you think you've been sent here to dismantle it, as the Freedom Caucus has, it suits your purposes. And that's why we've had 10 years of shutdowns and fiscal cliffs and everything they can do to degrade this exercise in self-government, to dis dispossess the American people of their opportunity to govern themselves is a good day for them. 
And I argue throughout the book that they, they have created a special sort of tyranny in this country because they've come here with Sarah Palin's cartoon version of what the founding fathers actually were engaged in, and they've inflicted it on the American people. And they believe they have a monopoly on wisdom, no matter how far outside the mainstream of conventional American political thought, even conventional Republican thought, their, 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 their politics represent. And now nobody could have imagined it, but we've elected as president the, a, a president that even the Freedom Caucus couldn't possibly have anticipated. He is their dream come true, and it is a, a recognition of the, the degraded view that um, many people have of our institutions in Washington. We'd be willing to put a reality TV star in charge. So what do we do? How do we get out of this? And then I'll stop. Um, what I do in the book is I go back to the founders and I, and I make an argument. Part, part of the effort is to reclaim the founders from the Tea Party. That is one of the reasons I wrote the book to begin with. That was a Machiavellian reason for writing the book. Uh, it turns out that the founders, who were Enlightenment figures, by no means perfect, and I say that over and over again in the book, but they genuinely believed or imagined because they, they had no good examples of what a democratic republic looked like. They only had bad examples of, of things that had gone awry, like ours is going awry right now. And they imagined, though, that in a republic, they, they, they did not believe that we would all agree with one another. Being in a republic meant that we had the freedom to disagree with one another. And in fact, they established a whole bunch of mechanisms, including the institutions of government, but also our freedom of speech, our freedom of assembly, our freedom to partition the government. Uh, uh, they, they, you know, they prevented the establishment of religion. All of that, and the Senate and the House, all of it was designed for us to mediate our disputes. And they believed out of those differences of opinion, we wouldn't create shabby compromises, but that we would create more imaginative and more durable solutions than any king or tyrant could come up with on their own. And that's what they really believed. And that's what we've completely lost in our national politics, that sense of pluralism that people act out every single day at the local level of government and in their businesses and in their homes in Washington, we no longer do that. And I, I believe our system can't work without agreeing that it's a place where we're not necessarily going to agree, but that we're going to come to an agreement that is in the interest of the next generation, in the interest, as Montesquieu would say, he's quoted in the book, of this republic. When you get to a point where a republic can no longer change its own laws, the republic will collapse. And I think that's sort of where we are at this point, unable to change our own laws because of the ideology mostly of the Freedom Caucus, although there are others um, who have caused us misery. I then walk us through uh, a bunch of uh, American writing, including uh, Frederick Douglass's July 5th speech, which has now gotten some air uh, recently, uh, and um, and Walt Whitman's a poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And basically what I'm asserting in the book is that a guy like Frederick Douglass deserves to be considered a founder just like the people who wrote the Constitution. In other words, the people who wrote the Constitution did two amazing things. They liberated us from uh, through an armed insurrection from a colonial power. That had never happened in human history before. They did it. They wrote a constitution that was then ratified by the people that, that, that would live under it. They did that too. But they also perpetuated human slavery. And it took another generation of Americans to end that. And Frederick Douglass, born a slave, goes to Massachusetts and, and says to the abolitionist movement, who at the time was arguing the constitution is a pro-slavery document, Douglass says, no, you're wrong. It's an anti-slavery document. We're just not living up to the sentiments of the words in that constitution. And that gives obvious political power to Frederick Douglass's argument. It changes the whole argument because we're now not living up to the founding precepts. And, and, I, and I argue that he should be, as I said, considered a founder like everybody else. And then I conclude the book by saying, 
that is actually how we should think of ourselves. That is how we should think of our responsibility at this perilous moment in this democracy, that our role as a citizen, or frankly as an elected official, or as a reporter, but or as a school teacher, but as a citizen, our role is to be a founder of this republic. And that generation after generation of Americans have worked, struggled imperfectly all the way to make this country more democratic, more fair, and more free. And that's what we need to do. And toward the end of the book, I, I remind myself and you um, that when I was school superintendent, I had occasion to think a lot about this idea that any kid could grow up to be president of the United States. And, um, and that that's something that's obviously true when you think about Abraham Lincoln and you think about Barack Obama and in other ways when you think about the current occupant of the White House. But, but what, I, what I write is that we would be so much better off and the kids in the Denver Public Schools and kids just like them all across this country would be so much better off if we thought of them also as future founders of this country. And that is how we need to think about them. And if we thought about them that way, we might take much more seriously the lack of quality of the education they're getting. We might take much more seriously the importance of getting universal health care for people. You might take more seriously the idea that if America doesn't have economic mobility for the vast majority of our citizens, that we're not really America anymore. And the, the key to fixing it is that we all have to come together as founders to do it. This is the opposite of the idea that I alone can fix it, which is what Donald Trump sold to the American people as he was stripping their agency from them. It is exactly the opposite of the kind of divisive politics that he ran on to get elected president and that he's perpetrating from the White House. It's a politics of unifying the country, not expecting people to agree, but unifying the country on the work we need to do for the next generation and, 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 and also to restore our place in the world. And so at the end, I do finish with saying, look, Roosevelt had four freedoms that he uh, wrote about and, and maybe we need to update the four freedoms for today and the ones that I propose, although you will have your own, as I say, the center across the hall will have his or her own, but um, is a freedom to rise so that we have when you work hard, you can actually move your family forward. The freedom to learn so that Americans can actually acquire the knowledge and skills they need to be able to uh, compete in the 21st century and provide their um, intellect and, and effort to our democracy. Freedom from violence, which I give a very broad definition, includes mass shootings, but also the killings that happen every weekend in Chicago and other cities in the country, the addiction that so many families suffer in our country, and the violence that social media is perpetrating on the next generation of Americans. And finally, the freedom to govern ourselves again, because that has been stripped away from us by the tyrants that have been here for the last 10 years, uh, and by the special interests, by the way the Supreme Court has rendered its decisions. Now one just last week about gerrymandering. That's uh, the third, and you know, you've got the gerrymandering decision, the, the, the Citizens United decision, and Shelby versus Holder, which is a voting rights decision, all of which has happened in the last decades, which are assaults on the democracy. I fell in love with our democracy again writing this book. And I, I, I am so optimistic about what it is we can do. And I believe it is vital at this moment when China is rising the way China is rising for us to offer another view of how humanity should organize ourselves. and and and. And I think that's why it's particularly important for us to make sure Donald Trump is a one-term president and that we can figure out on the back end of that how to govern the country again. I apologize for going on for so long. Now you don't have to read the book. <laughs> what questions does anybody have? By the way, I... I I, uh, thank you. I, uh, I ran into Mitch McConnell the other day, and I said to him, Mitch, I wrote this book, and it's really pretty tough on you. And he said, well, I understand you're running for president. Maybe that's the right thing for you to do. And, and then I said, you know, actually, Mitch, I think you're the only 
senator who will like the book because I write things like um, Mitch McConnell is immune to give and take unless he's taking everything, which he almost always is. And he sort of smiled. I had never, se never seen that before. Maybe I'll, just so you know, I tough on Mitch, but not tough on everybody. I, maybe just while people are thinking about a question, I'll read you one, one footnote about a Republican politician that I, there are a bunch of footnotes in here, which, I, by the way, I didn't know the politician was actually supposed to put their picture on the front of the book either. This is in, uh, I always sort of liked John Boehner. I invited myself over to his office one day and he kindly pointed to where I should sit to avoid smoke from his cigarette. Since he retired, he has found time to cut his own grass, play golf, and reflect on his erstwhile colleagues. He took the opportunity at Stanford to call Ted Cruz Lucifer in the flesh. He said, I have never worked with a more miserable son of a bitch in my life. Of the, of the Freedom Caucus, the former speaker told Politico, they can't tell you what they're for. They can tell you everything they're against. They're anarchists. They want total chaos. Tear it down and start over. That's where their mindset is. He has criticized the Freedom Caucus's co-founders calling Congressman Mark Meadows, quote, an idiot, and Congressman Jim Jordan, quote, a terrorist as a legislator. <laughs> More recently, Boehner has been the face of the National Institute for Cannabis Investing, saying, quote, cannabis is here to stay. The industry is only getting bigger, and I'm all in. <laughs> so that's one nice thing about a Republican. So if you have a question, could you step up to the, that mic, uh, that mic over there, please? Hi. Hi, first of all, um, is this thing on? Yeah. They give you speak closely. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, first of all, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for being um, here. Uh, did you actually grow up in India? Uh, no, I was there for 18 months. 18 months only. You don't speak any Hindi. No. No. Okay. But uh, I'll find somebody to translate for you if you'd like to conduct this conversation in uh, Hindi. Hindi like that. No, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, uh, my question boss, really. Boss. 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 That's boss. Boss. Uh, um, how do we win the Senate? You've been talking such again and great, again. Which states are vulnerable? Such a great question. How do we go about getting so, them? My opinion is. Uh, you know, when people say, well, how are you going to overcome McConnell? First of all, you, there's, we have a great candidate running against Mitch McConnell, Amy McGrath. You may have seen her. If you, if you have not seen the video that she put out today, you, you need to see it. Um, it's not going to be easy, but it's really possible. The guy is completely underwater in, in Kentucky, and he always somehow finds a way to win, but I think it's going to be tougher this time. Um, and I think we have to win the majority because there, you can't. He, he will. He, he unless he thinks he's facing political jeopardy. McConnell will not compromise, and the Freedom Caucus will not compromise. We've won the majority in the House, which is really good, and and they therefore can't. It's no longer a case of the minority of a minority stopping everything as they did with the Gang of Eight immigration bill, using the Hastert rule name for a guy who's in prison for other things. That, um, and so the best way for us to do that is to win a majority. And to win a majority, we need to win states like Colorado. We need to win states like Arizona. We need to win states like uh, Maine. We need, to, we, we need to win states, you know, we may need to compete in a state like Georgia. We may need to compete in a state like Texas. Arizona? And, and to, yeah, Arizona, I thought I mentioned, I apologize. That's much higher on the list. And, and we've made progress in the West. I mean, you know, Colorado, we, we may have two. Arizona, we could have two. New Mexico, we do have two. Nevada, we do have two. So I'm not one of these people who believes that we can't win a majority back. You hear people say that from time to time in the context of whether we should change the rules of the filibuster and all the rest of it. There, uh, there's a strong argument in the book, you may not agree with it, that suggests that we shouldn't change that. But here's what I think. For us to do that, we have to talk to the middle of the country. 
you know, and, and Medicare for all is not a proposition that can be accepted in the middle of the country. I'll give you a tip. If you, uh, if you want to win a Senate seat in the state of Colorado, you got a really great opportunity to do it this year. If you're for Medicare for all, you're going to lose. And if that's the Democratic Party's position, we're going to lose. We have to not disqualify ourselves. There's a sad, sad story in here about climate change that ends with the American people electing a climate denier, notwithstanding the fact that the vast majority of Americans believe climate change is real and we need to do something about it. But we lost the economic argument to Donald Trump. That should never have happened. It should be disqualifying to be a climate denier. And he should be the last one that we ever have in the White House. But the fact that we lost to him says something not just about his politics, but about our politics. And when it is so clear the economic damage that will be done if we don't address climate change and we are losing to somebody on the economic message, we should be asking ourselves why that happened and make sure we don't do it again. And a lot of that is about talking to people in my state and in states like my state. That's how we'll win the majority, I think. We, by the way, we, we need a presidential candidate who's for stuff that are broadly, is broadly supported by the American people, not for stuff that you can't even get Democrats to agree on. North Carolina is high on the list. <laughs> uh, Senator, this sort of goes to a What do I know about this stuff, though? I chaired the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee in 2014 and lost the biggest majority in modern American history. So as I say in the book, I'm still waiting for McConnell's thank you. Okay. When you talk about in 2016 losing the economic argument to Donald Trump and also supporting ideas that uh, have a majority of Americans are in favor, uh, in favor of. Could you talk a little bit about your position on free trade, free trade agreements, and specifically the balance between promoting greater opportunities for our businesses overseas with helping workers who are displaced and lose their jobs because of yeah, free sure. trade? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I mean, I, look, the, the, the whole trade debate in the last election needs to be contextualized in, in the broader ec American economy. And and I think it was became evident during the course of President Trump's uh, running for office that um, there were a lot of people in the in the country feeling really worried about their futures and their and 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 their and their families' future. It wasn't that surprising to me, as I said earlier. I see it all the time. Colorado's got one of the strongest economies on the planet, and and as I said, people can't afford a middle class life, and people that's a struggle. And when the the Obama administration had entered into the TPP negotiations, that was the context they were in. They never defended NAFTA from the beginning. You know, it was always uh, just sort of left alone. So by the time all of this came to pass. To be honest, I mean, I was carrying around the Iran deal on my back. The last thing I wanted to be carrying around in 2016 was TPP. And I think what we need to do out of this sort of the rubble of all of this is uh, acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of skepticism about these trade deals. We should use that as a way of negotiating the best deals that we can with people around the world. We cannot retreat from the Pacific Rim or anywhere else for that matter, but certainly not the Pacific Rim. And President Trump has been right to call out China. He's just done it in exactly the opposite way you should. I mean, we have the whole world to mobilize. There is not a country in the world that doesn't share the equities we have with respect to China, except for, I'll give them to you, North Korea, Russia, and China. That's a pretty good coalition of folks we could put together to push back on China's mercantilist interests. And then I think, just as we need to think about the transition on trade issues for people that are displaced, mm -hmm. and we need to think about what we're doing for the people that are gonna be displaced by artificial intelligence and technology, and we need to think about people that are going to be displaced as our energy mix shifts. This needs to be part of what we do. And you can do that stuff if you're not spending $13 trillion on tax cuts for rich people and in the Middle East. We have plenty of money to do what's necessary if we simply establish the priorities that we should. Thank you. Is there a non-male questioner in the <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Hi. 
Um, so, I don't set the ground rules, but that's one. I got three daughters. Daughters everywhere appreciate it. Um, so you weren't there to vote on the Senate resolution for the House supplemental or the supplemental bill for DHS funding, and so I don't really know what your position was and whether or not you were willing to compromise on that. And so you got the chance to elaborate a bit on the debate stage, but I wanted to hear more. What are you willing to compromise on immigration? And where do you draw the line? Well, I think, look, I, th- I would have voted for it if I had been here. I wasn't here because I was campaigning someplace. Yeah. Um, uh, um, look, the Gang of Eight bill, I think, has the outlines of what we should be doing on immigration. Just for a reminder, it created a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people here that are undocumented. It had the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been conceived, much less put on the floor of the Senate. It got 68 votes. It had, contrary to what Donald Trump says, $46 billion of border security in it. Seven months on his $6 billion for the wall. The bill we passed in 2013 had $46 billion of border security in it. And, and the, the, he may have a problem with it because it was actually 21st century technology that we were using so that you could see every inch of the border so that we could deal with the fact that 40% of the people that are here that are undocumented are people who came lawfully and then overstayed their visa. We have no capacity in America to figure out who those people are. It, 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 I negotiated with Marco Rubio and, and, and Orrin Hatch and Diane Feinstein the agriculture provisions that, that were the first time that an agriculture immigration bill were ever, was ever endorsed by the Farm Workers Union and the, um, and the growers in this country. And I believe that, um, that that's a good basis for an agreement today, including the, you know, the, the, well, we did the DREAM Act in there. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there that has to do with HBA, HB, HB2, H2B visas and H, H2A visas, all kinds of other things that we dealt with. And so I didn't feel like I had to compromise on very much. I wouldn't have spent $46 billion on border security. I would have spent more of that money making sure that commerce could go back and forth between Mexico and the United States more efficiently. But it was what was required to get a big bipartisan vote. And that's what we thought was necessary to blow up to be able to get it through the House. Now, it turned out we were wrong about that. This is an important lesson. We were wrong about that because of the tyranny of a minority, the Freedom Caucus, in the House, 40 people able to basically say to Boehner, there's no way we're going to let you do this or you're going to lose your speakership. He lost it anyway. Paul Ryan ended up leaving in, you know, with a closed government. I can't think of a more appropriate way for him to have left. But we, it would have been really good for one of those speakers to put that bill on the House and to pass it. Now we have this issue of refugee, uh, refugee crisis. We should not be making our immigration laws based on a refugee crisis at the border. We should be dealing with the refugee crisis. And I think what we should be doing there is not acting like a weak country. Trump acts all the time like we're a weak country. You know, the Saudis kill a journalist and we can't do anything about it because it'll somehow destroy our economy. Or we can't treat people humanely at the border because we can't summon the will to spend a little bit of resources to do what needs to be done. I think we should do that. I think we could do that. We obviously should never, ever separate children from their parents uh, again. And we should lead a conversation in in the hemisphere about how to have a shared refugee policy that would be good for refugees and good for the United States and good for other countries, some of whom need uh, Spanish-speaking labor and would like to have the opportunity to have it. Finally, we need to deal with the root causes of the, of the issues. And I've spent time in El Salvador and Guatemala and Hondur- El Salvador and Honduras and Mexico. And, and um, I went down there because I'm a parent, as I, three kids, and I wanted to know what it would take for a parent to, to basically lash their child to a drug smuggler for 1,500 miles with a high likelihood that they'd be raped or, or could be killed. Um, and it turns out that 1,500 miles from our border, the conditions are so, so unsafe that people are willing to do that. And we should have an interest in our own hemisphere of helping fix those problems, and I think we can. Thank, Thank you. you.
Hi, Senator. Hi. Um, so I just turned 18 in June, um, and there's another birthday coming up, the 18th birthday, and that's the war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan is currently 17 years and eight months old. Uh, in my generation, we've only really known war, really, like the war in, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, generally the war on terror. Uh, what is your plan to end the war in Afghanistan and broadly end wars in the Middle East like you've talked about? I, I wish that I could find this. Maybe in one second I can find it. You're probably <laughs> not supposed to do this. In a, at You're a all book. good. Well, wait a minute. Let me just see. Yeah. So this is on page. I don't read Roman numerals, but um, <laughs> whatever page it is in the, in the prologue, if... If we imagine Americans whose political awareness began, this is on page three, or, or little Roman nine. If we imagine Americans whose political awareness began in 2010, the stories told here illustrate the only political conditions they know. For those in their 20s who may have missed out on a serious American history class, Washington politics look like, looks like those of a nation slouching toward despair, dysfunction, maybe even despotism. With every month that goes by, it becomes more difficult to remember an American government that functioned in any other way. As a people, we deserve to know that in the United States, there once were and there still can be better courses. And later in the book, I write about what you just talked about, which is for people of that same age, they've known only war. And it's time for us to wind down the war in Afghanistan. It's time for us to come home from there. And it, it is, you know, the nation's longest war. And I don't think we're doing a lot of good there now. Thanks. Is there a non-male questioner in that line? Hello. I heard this morning that the United Mine Workers of America have uh, invited all the 2020 Democratic candidates to address their issues going forward with coal mining jobs. Um, so I was just curious as to how, what your response would be, what how the Democrats should I mean part of its renewables, but um, but what you know going forward, what can be done for jobs like coal mining that are you know disappearing? I mean, first of all, I think there's a broader question here, which is um, as somebody who's a school superintendent, pretty important to me. We have the worst income inequality that we've had for over a hundred years mm -hmm. in America. We, and as I said earlier, we basically have had no economic mobility for 40 years. And the, the wealth gap between uh, Anglo-Americans and African-Americans uh, is greater today than it was before the Great Recession. And the same is true for Latino-Americans. Here's a fact that's in the book. If you are a, an African-American in America with a college degree, on average, you earn less than a white American with a high school degree. Our, this, it, and it gives me no, no, I feel no, you know, this is depressing for me to say, but our education system in this country, taken as a whole, is reinforcing the income inequality that we have rather than liberating people from it. The best predictor of the quality of education you get is your parents' income. The best predictor of your income is your parents' income. For people today who are in their 30s, they are the first generation of Americans where 50% of them will earn less than their parents earned. So th this economic dislocation is widespread in our country, not so much on the coast, but everywhere else. And we have to address it. And I think some ways of addressing it are, complete, are, 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 are changing the way our tax code works, changing anti the antitrust laws, dealing with in investments, making investments again as our parents and grandparents made in us. And I think for people that are going to be dislocated because of these policy decisions, like the mine workers, but also like people that are going to um, be dislocated because of technology I mentioned earlier, we can't treat this anymore like it's just the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. The most important thing we could do is give everybody a really good education, because if they had a good education, they could then apply their skills to do something else. 70% of the kids in this country do not go to college. And we have absolutely no way in America today 
of giving them anything other than a minimum wage because we're not training them to do something more skilled than that. I think in the particular case of you know places like West Virginia, there's going to have to be a lot of work to figure out how to create tax incentives to bring jobs there, to support local communities that have no other work uh, during the transition, and it's not going to be easy. Both parties need to have an objective of dealing with this, though, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Senator. Um, I just want to say I think you're really impressive. I really, I really like your health care policy. And I, do want to, I just want to say when you touched on Medicare for All, thank you for pushing – oh, I'm sorry. Um, you're too tall for the mic. Kind of, I don't want to, like, feedback. But during the debate, thank you for pushing back on Senator Sanders on Medicare for All policy because I do want to say I like my insurance, but there's still problems with it. And I tried to go on uh, true va- prep – uh, Truvada, for those who don't know, it lowers the chance of contracting HIV right. by 94%. Yep. And even with Blue Cross Blue Shield through the government, it's $500 a month. Yep. And without insurance, it's $2,000. Right. And that doesn't even cost, and that's not even figuring some of the costs for people who live with serious conditions like HIV, AIDS for antiretrovirals that cost half of what people make. You know, if you're running for president, what is your plan to address prescription drug prices? So, a great question. And, and by the way, most of the time, when people burst into tears in my town halls, other than because of my performance, uh, it is, it is, it is, it is, uh, it's about health care. And it's just a reminder that we're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have universal health care. And it is, uh, it's an economic noose around our neck, and it is morally reprehensible that we don't do it. On drug prices, Medicare X, which is my public option, which I believe uh, is an elegant way of finishing the work we started with the Affordable Care Act, demands that the federal government negotiate drug prices for people, and I think that would make a huge difference in in terms of what you'd have to pay. Thank you. Thanks. So we have time for this one last question here. And and if uh, there are lingering questions, there's going to be a signing afterwards. So so be thinking of that. And if you haven't purchased a book yet, they're behind how the register. About, how about if I answer in one sentence answers? Sure. Would that work? So just Would that work for more? folks here? Sure. Is that okay? Thanks. Hi, Senator. My name is Sydney Warren. I've been following your career since I was in elementary school because I'm a Denver Public Schools kid, and I worked in your office when I was in high school. So thank you for hiring. Where did you go to school? Denver Center for International Studies. Right. Um, I've been interested in China since I went to DCIS, and you mentioned that the way we're addressing China is all wrong. So I was wondering, how would you engage China? And can you speak specifically to the tariffs? One sentence. In one sentence. Yeah, I can do it in one sentence. It, it will have some conjunctions in it, but I can do it. Um, no, look, I think that they, 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 it is true that since the 80s, they have not um, abided by, the, um, uh, by trading practices that we would consider fair, comma. Uh, and therefore, we have to push back, hyphen. But the way the president has done it is totally wrong because the tariffs are, are basically a tax on American producers and a tax on American workers. My agriculture sector in Colorado um, um, is going to rely for all of its growth on exports to the Pacific Rim. So we need to make sure that we're, we're players there. And I think what we can do is organize the rest of the world, as I said earlier, in a, in a broad coalition because Europe's interests and our interests and, and Latin America's interests and even the Asian countries' interests are basically the same. You know something about the region, so you know that the countries there have no interest in living in a unipolar world. They don't want to live in a unipolar world that's China-dominated. They don't want to live in one we're dominating. And I think we're, if we could get somebody in the presidency who actually knew what they were doing on this stuff, that would be a big help because um, – it, not only would we be reasserting America's leadership in the world, but we would be reasserting our values in the world. Our values and the Chinese values are very different ways of organizing human society, and I think we should want to compete. When you go to Africa, last part of the sentence, when you go to Africa, <laughs> but, and you, know, you meet a politician there, 
they get elected, and then by the time they are back, they go to their party, and then they come, you know, like the the party they celebrating their election, and they go back, and there's a plane ticket waiting on their desk to send them to Beijing, and there we're nowhere in Africa these days. So thank you for the question. I'll be briefer. Yes, sir. How's it going, Senator? Uh, as a former Mississippi resident, thank you for spending the fourth there. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate seeing you in Vicksburg and Sunflower thank, County. Thank um, you. So along that line, and I'll frame this in a one-sentence way for you, what would be the first thing you would do as president to innovate the federal government to help out our rural neighbors? To help out our rural to neighbors. To innovate the federal government. To innovate help. the federal government yeah. in a way that I helps rural America. I would completely change the way the federal government interacts with our rural neighbors on infrastructure so that rural counties in this country could come together as regions to apply for that money so they don't all have to reinvent the wheel Every time they want to do something on water or broadband or anything else, that would make a massive difference uh, to rural communities like my wife. She's from a small town called Mariana, Arkansas, in the Delta, which is why we started there. Thank you. Hi. Uh, health care or gun control? You can pick. You pick. Um, you can do health care. So you're going to have to use a couple lands in this one. So you have your own proposal, Medicare X, which is a public option bill, which doctors will still have money with as if Medicare was there and uh, low-income people and people will be able to buy in. So my question is, how will this bill support the low-income if they can afford it and will it require a tax increase? And second, would you leave your, your health care that you're given by the government for this plan? Will I? Yeah, would you? Uh, I might very well do that, except that I haven't taken my health care from the government since we passed the Affordable Care Act. So I have bought it on the exchange out in Colorado. I have not taken the subsidy once, uh, and, uh, and, um, and I've had lousy private insurance, and uh, I've had great private insurance. I've recently um, had a cancer operation, and I can't actually say enough about the folks that I have, and I'd, I'd rather make the choice of who my insurance person is than have Bernie make the choice as much <laughs> as I love Bernard um, the uh, uh, the uh, my plan doesn't require any taxes to be raised it doesn't cost 33 trillion dollars which is what Medicare for all costs uh, it actually makes money for the federal treasury because the people that buy and this is the CBO scoring the people that buy it then don't need a bigger subsidy to buy private insurance because they're buying this cheaper alternative, which is Medicare X. And I think the most that it will cost any family because of the subsidies that are built into it is 14% of their income. Mm -hmm. So you think about what's happened to America's healthcare system. We had the expansion of Medicaid, which was really important to covering people in, um, in, in, in this country, in the states that actually expanded Medicaid. But there are a whole bunch of people in America that are working, who are making too much money to be on Medicaid, but not making enough money to, to buy health insurance. And those are the, that's millions and millions and millions of people. I was in a place called Jackson County, Colorado, a very, very rural place in our state not that long ago, where this guy was saying, I, uh, I came back here to buy a restaurant that I loved when I was a kid. And my wife and I are working 50 hours a week. I have a bowling alley attached to it. I want to hire two people, but I can't hire them. And I said, why can't you hire them? He said, because if I, if I hire them, they'll have to give up their welfare. And I said, what do you mean their welfare? And he said, well, they're Medicaid. So here, and by the way, this guy has no health insurance himself. So here we have a situation in America where if you're going to go to work, you have to trade in your health care to go to work. But if you're working 50 hours a week, you don't have health insurance. It is ridiculous. And the public option that I proposed, I think, would solve that in a way that could actually get done, whereas I think the prospect of taking insurance away from 180 million people is something that, you know, the American people just aren't going to settle for. I mean, Bernie couldn't get it done in Vermont. He could not get it done in Vermont because the taxes would go up so much that the people in Vermont said, no, we're not going to do this. So I... I think it's really important for us to get to universal health care. It's a moral concern of mine to get it done because it's disrupting so many people's lives who don't have it. And, uh, 
And I and I think the good news is people will support a public option, and that's what we should be for. Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly, just before you go, uh, I just wanted to point out: I'm not saying you're wrong or anything. I'm not disagreeing you can with say you. You're wrong, but we live um, in a democratic republic. I did this topic for debate, and you said it costs 33 trillion per year, but CNN says that it costs 0.3 trillion less per year with Medicare for all than the current status quo. I just depend, want to leave depend, you with that. Depending on how that's implemented, and and you and. Um, you know that you 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 need it to actually be implemented well for that to be true. And but I accept the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what that means though is that instead of spending that money in on insurance premiums, you have to spend that money in taxes. And the taxes that will be required to support thirty three trillion dollars over ten years, which is which is three trillion dollars a year, uh, is more than we pay in taxes today. And that's why it couldn't get sold in Vermont, and that's why I don't think it can be sold nationally. I really don't. But I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Thank you. Can I? Thank you, guys. I, the, um, I wanted to read just one thing, just to give people a sense of hope, and then I'm done. I'm going to stop. Is that right? It takes one second. Go ahead. So this is sort of, I mean, because it is so easy to be discouraged. It's so easy to be depressed about everything. And I don't feel depressed or discouraged. I am, I am aggravated that we're wasting the next generation's time so profoundly. But so toward the end, I write, if we are again at one of history's turning points, as I believe we are, then we have a choice to make. One road leads to the depths of the American past. In times of uncertainty, it has always been tempting for some to try to capitalize on our darkest fears. Anytime Americans have become anxious or worried, there have been those who saw advantage in fanning the flames. Theirs are not among the names inscribed on history's honor roll, yet sowing division can be all too easy. It is precisely at moments of crisis when the confidence of a people is at the lowest ebb. These are the moments when we are more tempted to abandon our democratic traditions. They are also the moments when confidence in oneself and confidence in one another are needed most. This is especially true in a republic where only the citizens can answer the fire bells in the night. If we are to remain a republic, no one alone can fix it. When we hold on to our values through tough times, we forge them anew, as Roosevelt did in his time, and burnish them for future generations. These values are made stronger and more useful to those who will face challenges in days far ahead. At times of deepest crisis in our past, we have ultimately overcome malign forces wishing to hoard the promise of democracy for themselves. When we succeed, we recast our freedoms for the trials of our own time, consistent with, what, with our ideals. Freedoms to be won not simply through government action, but more important, by what all of us do in our homes and our communities. And that's what I think. Thank you for being here today. Really appreciate it. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.